Welcome to the Nutritional Outlook Podcast. I'm Jennifer Grebo, Editor-in-Chief of Nutritional Outlook Magazine. And I'm Sebastian Kravitz, Editor. We are your podcast hosts. Um, Nutritional Outlook Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand and leading informational resource for manufacturers of dietary supplements, healthy foods, and natural products. On this week's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Robert Principe, Director of Business Development at Netrush, We asked Rob the question on every supplement marketer's mind. Should you let Amazon sell your dietary supplements? Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Rob. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? audience-fed creative, and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today, we're interviewing Robert Principe, Director of Business Development at Netrush. Rob is here to discuss the many complexities of selling a dietary supplement on Amazon. Thank you for joining us today, Rob. Thank you very much for having us. Hello, everyone. We're so happy to have you. Okay, let's just kick this off. Rob, tell us more about yourself and Netrush. What has your experience been in terms of e-commerce and supplements? And how does Netrush help dietary supplement companies succeed in e-commerce? Sure. Um, Well, I've been in the Amazon slash digital space since 2013. At that time, I was with a supplement brand called Megafood, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of. I actually started with Megafood in 2009 as an inside sales rep, and we were purchased. And we brought on Robert Craven and a whole executive team when we brought some real order to the sales side. Anyways, at that time, we didn't really have an e-commerce channel. The online accounts were considered house accounts, and we really had no idea what was or wasn't happening on Amazon. I think that was pretty much the standard in natural way back in 2013. In Amazon years, it feels like we were like going around by horse and buggy when you say 2013. Things have changed (laughs) so much. Um, So needless to say, I didn't have any e-com experience, but I did see an opportunity there because I had started buying online and this is so far back when people were nervous to buy things online because your credit card information and you didn't know how long it was going to take to get to your house. But I noticed that the orders that these um, these online retailers were putting in were pretty large. You know, your Vitacost, your iHerbs of the world. And fast forward, I saw an opportunity there. I learned from the retailers a little bit about what they wanted out of a partner brand. I created a plan for a channel. I created my own position. I pitched it to the executive team. And all of a sudden, I was an internet account manager, just like that. So ahead of your time. Yeah. And I had no idea what I was stumbling into. I was, you know, just curious, which I guess is a good quality. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But we, but we, we quickly realized that we needed to figure out Amazon. And what prompted that was um, a lot of the online retailers and brick and mortar retailers were complaining about pricing, saying, we really can't support your brand, especially the brick and mortar retailers. We really can't support your brand because 
customers walk in, we educate them about your brand and then they go and buy it online because it's three, four or $5 cheaper. So the main impetus for figuring out Amazon wasn't even revenue. The main impetus was protecting the brand and installing a map policy so we could make sure the Indies and the Sprouts and the Whole Foods, you know, pre-Amazon purchase uh, were whole and they would still support us. And that's when, ironically enough, we engaged with NetRush. So I was actually a client of NetRush for four years, directly managed the account. We were their first full service partner. So we kind of grew up in the space together. And we learned a lot from them. They learned a lot from us. They've, you know, they being NetRush has, I think there were 16 employees when we signed with them. Now we have over 200 employees and I'm one of them. So if you include my time with Megafood, I've also managed e-com for two other brands, one in pet, uh, another one in supplements. And now I am on the agency side. So I am familiar with 3P, 1P, managing pure plays, managing brick and mortar and brick and mortar pure plays and other marketplaces. So even though I've only been in the space for what, eight years, nine years, feels like I've been making furniture since like 1850. That's what what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Things just change so quickly. And I think that's what keeps me really engaged. You know, it's not like you're just going to work and building the same widget every day. Um, The market changes, global pandemics throw everything on its ear, priorities change. And now that I am able to work cross uh, cross category and not just in supplements or not just in wellness, you know, it really, for lack of a better term, spices up my day. So I like it. That's so great. And NetRush, um, what kind of services are they offering? How do you um, sure. do the journey? Yeah. Sure. So when we say full service, what we mean by that is pretty much a- across the digital landscape with a focus on Amazon and to a lesser degree, um, walmart.com. We all know that walmart.com has its own marketplace now. They are investing heavily they want to be, you know, Pepsi to Amazon's Coke. And even though percentage-wise is still a very small piece of it, there's a lot more attention going into it because brands seek the either the Amazon alternative or they just recognize the power of Walmart as the largest retailer. Um, so they don't want to miss the boat. Um, so we do everything from back end to front end. So we create the strategy and manage advertising for both on and off platform. We manage brand control. So back to the map policy I was speaking about earlier, removing gray market sellers. If there's a counterfeit situation, what, whatever the case may be, we could support brands on that. We support brands on the supply chain side of things which may not be the most exciting thing to talk about, but is a really hot topic right now, especially since COVID. It's the cost is going up, the capacity is going down and 3PLs are maxed out. Not to mention there's not a lot of 3PLs who have experience or um, really know about how to inject into the um, Amazon ecosystem. So being that we've been a retailer for, for 15 years and we've had to drive those those efficiencies and cost savings for ourselves, we figured, hey, we've been doing this for a long time. Why don't we 
offer this standalone to other uh, brands. So now we sell that. So we do prep and inject. We do merchant fulfill prime, seller fulfill prime. We could fulfill a brand's uh, direct to consumer site. We could go B2B. So from brand to wholesale account. And um, we could also fulfill for any other platform. So if a brand sells on walmart.com or target.com or whatever the case may be, we could fill that gap as well. Back on the retail side, you know, the not so exciting part of it, we can handle all of customer service. So we could solicit reviews. We could respond to any kind of reviews, questions, et cetera. We are, we are also um, able to manage and optimize the entire catalog. We have an in-house studio. So we could do product shots, lifestyle images, animated video, live video. So we're really a one-stop shop with over 200 employees in three different locations and partner locations in Europe as well. So it's a really exciting time for us and for me to be a client at one point and now work here. I think really speaks volumes to the integrity of NetRush and how they really supported our brands because I wouldn't be here if I wasn't treated right or if we weren't successful. So it's really easy to get excited to sign a brand because I could speak to what we do. You know, I'm not hypothesizing or taking somebody's word for it. That's great. And I just have one follow-up question. It's I can just imagine how great the need is for your services. Um, mm. So many companies out there. For people who don't know who might be listening, um, what does 3PL stand for? That's a great question. And I should probably back up because I threw out a few acronyms there. <laughs> so FBA is fulfilled by Amazon. Prep and inject simply means that we prepare the product up to the Amazon standards to be sold as units. And then we inject it into their fulfillment center. 3PL stands for third-party logistics. So that's pretty much when anything is out of the brand's ecosystem and used to take that product to either the end consumer or to another wholesale slash retail partner in order to prep it and have it on site for sale. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. So what do you see happening in the supplement industry in terms of e-commerce kind of more generally? Uh, is it safe to say that most supplement companies today are selling their products online in some extent or form? I, I think that's a really safe assumption. It's So you have supplements, which have been growing year over year for, I think, 13 or 14 straight years um, and really saw a ramp up during COVID. And being that they are consumables and you could tie things into subscriptions and being that the key buyer is a woman and the mom of the house, then you have her buying supplements for dad and for the kids. So there's definitely a large need out there. And once you decide on a supplement, even pre-COVID, if you know it works, if you know you want to take it, and there's no real questioning as to if, but it's really when, then purchasing it online makes all the sense in the world, especially if you aren't making a lot of trips to the grocery store because you feel, you know, a little bit nervous about your health and safety. Absolutely. And as a mom, I second that. So that's the reason we're doing it. Um, 
So another question, if you're a supplement company doing e-commerce, where should you be selling your products? For instance, what are the top three sites that you would want to hit? Well, first, I think you really should be selling it from your own site. And to a lot of people, that may sound like a given, but there were a lot of brands pre-COVID who weren't taking advantage of the ability to speak right to their end consumer. And I get it. You know, it's really expensive to drive traffic to a brand site. Uh, So they may think the customer acquisition cost is high, plus supply chain is high, right? Because you have to get it out there. But you're dealing with more margin, too. So there's no middleman. So you're not going from your cost of goods to wholesale, you're going from your cost of goods to retail. And uh, just having customers like the ability to purchase it from this site. So that would be number one. In the supplement space, I think there are really good partners out there. I think Thrive Market is a great option. I think iHerb is a very unique and good option to get your products to go internationally with them assuming a lot of the um, regulatory risk. And even though Vitacost is kind of morphing since Kroger purchased them and is now kind of bringing them into the fold, I still think Vitacost is a really good option. Now, those are sites. Now, what I would say as far as marketplaces, a lot of people think Amazon is a given, and this may surprise a lot of people to to hear me say this, but really think about what you want to get out of Amazon and or Walmart before you start selling, or if you're rethinking about what you should put into those marketplaces, because it's not easy. You know, it's very expensive. It's very noisy. And unless you know what, what your KPIs are and what your goals are, you may be frustrated and you may not really get out of it what you're hoping. But as far as pure plays, sites that are non-marketplaces, your own site, Thrive Market, iHerb, Vitacost, those guys, um, they've been around for a while, but I think they're still pretty much the standard. And I think Thrive Market is about to do an IPO here pretty soon. So it's it's been impressive. Great. Follow-up question to that. What about um, brick-and-mortar retailers um, that are trying to get into a bit of e-commerce to kind of remain competitive? Um, are, would they have the same options? Um, what kind of challenges do they face in terms of creating like a e-commerce uh, infrastructure? Yeah, well, brick-and-mortar retailers are not going to have the same options as third-party pure plays, right? So if I have Rob's Health Food Store, I'm not going to sell Rob's Health Food Store on iHerb.com, right? So, you, so you're going to have to sell from your own site, which again, it's going to be expensive, especially for a brick and mortar retailer because they have to go from their cost, right? So they're purchasing it wholesale. So they only have that limited amount of margin from wholesale to retail. Then when you factor in freight to the end consumer, it gets really expensive. Um, but f- from a brick and mortar role, If you definitely want to sell online, you are going to have to work with supplements who, with excuse me, with supplement companies who allow you to sell on third-party marketplaces, and will allow you to be price competitive um, by enforcing your map policy. And even then, unless you're bringing some kind of value, to just ask a supplement brand to just allow you to sell their product while they pay for all the advertising, while they update the listings, while they 
drive the traffic and you're just kind of there catching the sales, that's it's tough to get authorization. It really, really is. So if, if, especially if you're a mom and pop or if you're a regional chain, like a Lassen's in California or something like that, it's really hard to push your way into the space and kind of grab that piece of the pie, at least in my experience. Got it. And another question about um, marketplaces. So is it beneficial to be on a marketplace or should you be on more than just one? Are there ones that are priorities where you definitely want to be? Yeah. So the broad answer, and of course it all depends, you know, the size of your brand, the size of your SKU set, what your goals are, but I have to somewhat answer the question, right? So, <laughs> so if you could stomach the cost of doing business and there are enough margins there for you, then Amazon is a no-brainer. It's 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 so needed that I speak to several brands now who don't even look to Amazon to generate profitability. They look at it as almost table stakes. I'm like, listen, it's going to cost us a ton to advertise, but we have to be there. So it's almost like an advertising platform. I mean, upwards of 60% of all product searches start in that Amazon search bar. So if you're not there and you're not heavily reviewed and show up high in search results, it doesn't just hinder you on Amazon. It hinders you across the retail marketplace, including brick and mortar. I mean, my wife will go shopping at Sprouts and she'll just want to pick something up. But if it's something new that she hasn't tried before, whether it's a snack or a supplement, she'll just hop right on Amazon and, ch- and check out the reviews, even if she buys it in store, right? So that's needed. Just don't always assume that you're going to hop on Amazon to make a bunch of money. You just have to be completely clear about what, you, what you're going to get out of it. And secondarily, I would definitely say Walmart. You know, since the launch of Walmart Plus, the, you know, the, their answer to Prime and them investing and wanting to clean up their marketplace, it's become really conducive, you know, to smaller brands. It's Amazon circa 2011. You know, the ad console is not very robust and the traffic is not even close to Amazon, but you kind of have an opportunity to get in at the ground floor. Now, since we're speaking of supplements, there are a lot of premium brands who don't really like being associated with Walmart because it's Walmart. But I think it's important to to set that line of delineation that Walmart's a marketplace. So just because you're on walmart.com, it doesn't mean that you're on Walmart shelves and you can still tell your story. If, if you're smart, you can still control your price points and you're reaching a larger segment of customers. And listen, the natural channel has changed a lot since I left mega food in 2017. I don't even know how much of a channel it is anymore with all of the big boys coming in and scooping up a lot of the snack companies and supplement companies. And of course, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. But I still feel like there are brands who fancy themselves as premium and would like to be a little bit, you know, channel specific, but but they can do it now or they can do it later. Eventually they're probably going to hop on Walmart. So why not do it now? Okay. 
Um, turning our attention to Amazon specifically, um, can you speak about the process and experience of selling products, especially supplements on Amazon? The process of starting or my experience in doing? I'm sorry. Um, I guess kind of, um, I guess broad strokes, like mm. what it's like to the process of selling supplements on Amazon, I guess kind of the standards, um, you know, mm. stuff like that. Okay. So supplements have come under a lot of heat, especially the last couple of years with COVID, you know, they've always kind of been ostracized and people outside of the industry say things like they're not regulated and you urinate it all out and there's no purpose to them. So I feel like supplements have been fighting an uphill battle for a very long time. COVID made it even more difficult because people were looking for options. And of course, a lot of companies were looking to hitch their wagon to the quote unquote COVID star for a lack of a better term, where people were really investing in supplements and their health, maybe made a couple of claims that were little in the gray area. So, so the first thing that I would say, if you want to sell supplements on Amazon or, or even if you currently are, just make sure your, your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed as far as the Shea compliance. If you even think you're getting close to the line, take a step back away from the line. The last thing you want to do is have your listing pulled down or have your variations broken up because Amazon will pull that listing down in a heartbeat, not even tell you why. And then you'll spend the next two, three, four, sometimes five weeks trying to get it up. And the opportunity cost of that and the time to get it back up, plus it dings your account. And then even when you get that listing back up, it's not a V recovery. Like you have to slowly pick that traffic back up. And if there are, are other sellers on that listing or sorry, product, they're, they're grabbing the sales. You have to wrangle it back from them. And from a consumer experience, I never, it's never great to look for a product and not find it on Amazon or, or say something like this product is out of stock. So mind your P's and Q's as far as that is concerned. If you are what I would consider a commodity supplement, meaning if you're just paying a third party manufacturer to make very generic B, C, and D vitamins, and you're just kind of white labeling it and just hoping to make a quick buck. The only way you're going to win is on price uh, because you don't have a story. But I have a feeling that your listeners are not those type of supplement brands. So if you consider yourself a premium supplement, you've got to figure out how to tell your story and you have to figure out how to cut through the noise. Um, Amazon is getting better at allowing brands to to tell their stories with A plus content, their brand stories are getting a lot better. Video, video, and more video. Um, they have sponsored video ads now. How, whatever kind of video you can get up and you could produce, make it. And then I would make sure that your presence and look and branding is consistent across all platforms. So your Amazon store should mirror your website. And how you look on shelf at Whole Foods should look just like how you look on your Amazon store. It needs to be really clean. Your labels have to be consistent. Your product set has to be consistent. Launches have to be in unison. And of course, we can never forget your pricing has to be aligned. It just has to be. Mm -hmm. um, 
And outside of that, just be prepared for a fight. Supplements are, it's, it's an, an extremely competitive marketplace. And I think a lot of, you know, legacy brands who are tried and true, high quality, a ton of respect are experiencing that now. I mean, you had people like Vital Proteins really jump in and disrupt the whole space, right? And you have legacy brands like New Chapter, Mega Food, Garden of Life, and Gaia who have really had to expand their set, uh, reinvent themselves to remain competitive because you can't just rest on your laurels. Now, as consumers, that's great, right? Because it's driving down pricing, it's driving product innovation, it's giving us more choice. But if you're a brand, don't just say, hey, we are X brand, we make a great product. Of course, people are going to keep buying us because they won't. (laughs) They won't. They'll go somewhere else, I promise. There's just too much choice. I wonder if you can get into the cons or dangers of selling supplements on Amazon. You went over it a little bit, but I wonder if mm-hmm. you can get more specific. Um, think, like issues that come to mind or quality control, price control, even counterfeiting. What kind of warnings do you have for our listeners about, you know, selling products, supplements on Amazon? That's a great question. So one thing I say to a lot of brands who I speak to, you know, people are starting to become a little bit disenchanted with Amazon from a brand perspective, which which I completely understand. They do not make it easy. It's very hard to be profitable. And uh, they're just tough to deal with, right? Especially if you don't have an agency slash expert as an intermediary. Um, But guess what? If there is any demand for your product, somehow, some way it's going to end up on Amazon. I can't tell you how many brands I talked to who were just like, I have no idea how it's getting on there. It's almost magical. Somehow, some way it ends up there. And I'm not even talking about counterfeit product. I'm talking about authentic product somehow makes its way to the platform. And if it doesn't, to be frank, then nobody wants it. Because if, <laughs> because if somebody can make a buck off it, they're going to find a way. So the only choice you have isn't whether or not you're going to be on Amazon. It's whether or not you're going to control your presence on Amazon. And that to me is a no-brainer. So even if you don't want to make it a focus and you don't want to invest in it, brand control is a minimum. So you have to make sure that if you're not the seller or if Amazon's not the only seller, that you have to know who the sellers are. And you have to make sure that you have a seller um, authorization process, that you have a map policy. So those sellers keep your pricing in line. Um, You have to make sure that you're distributors play nice, which is very difficult. And I know you're going to have some listeners who are just going to be like, yeah, right. How are we supposed to do that? But when distributor holds your product and it just goes, like it just go anywhere. So it's really great, you know, to set that precedent on either having a retailer list from them or set some parameters or, or um, limitations around that. So gray market sellers are a real threat. And what I mean when I say gray market sellers, anybody who's selling your product on Amazon who is either not authorized or you just don't know who they are. Um, So gray market sellers, regulatory is always a threat. Like I mentioned before, um, Amazon will, will wake up one day and say, X ingredient isn't allowed anymore. And all of a sudden you're set really. And Amazon will roll out new policies with no real plan. 
behind how they're going to execute <laughs> those policies. So they'll be like, well, you can't play in this playground. And then you'll ask five questions about that playground and they won't have any answers. So you've, you kind of have to have, what am I trying to say? You, you, you need to be agile and have your ducks in a row and make sure that any kind of certifications or GMP or best manufacturing practices that you have all that documentation whenever they would want it. And then to a lesser degree, counterfeit, I think that more applies when we're talking about any any sort of commodity product that is easily uh, duplicated. If you were going to try to counterfeit, say, a mega food, for instance, it's going to be tough to make money on that, yeah. right? You know, you've got the glass bottle, you've got the label, the tablets have a specific look. It's, you know, it's going to be real difficult. So I wouldn't be overly concerned about counterfeiting. I would just really be concerned about regulatory, quality control, your brand look, and pricing. And of course, from a pricing perspective as well, profitability. You know, you really have to keep your eye on that prize. If you're looking to be in the black in any way, shape, or form, unless you're starting out with giant margins and bless you if you are, uh, you you really have to watch your fees. You really have to watch your spend and um, just be prepared. You may want to look at that blended margin because <laughs> it's quite possible that not every single SKU you put on Amazon is going to end up in the black. Also, Rob, what about advertising? How much should companies allocate to advertising spend when it comes to e-commerce or even just Amazon? So that is a huge question that everybody wants to know. And I will try to answer it as specifically as I can. So there's a misconception that when you are planning your ad spend, the one KPI or the one key KPI that you should be focused on is a cost or advertising cost of sale, which is an Amazon term. If you're not an Amazon person, you would consider it as ROAS. So return on ad spend. Now, the reason why that can be misleading as an indicator is there are all different stages of the funnel, right? So if you're playing at the bottom of the funnel and you're just using your branded keywords, so if I had Rob Supplements, that means I'm advertising on Rob Supplements and I'm reaching people who are already searching for my product. So of course, my conversion rate is going to be high. Inversely, if I am doing uh, category keywords and I'm just doing supplements or men's health or men's supplements, there are a lot of different organizations bidding on those keywords. So the cost per click is going to be very high. So my return on ad spend is going to be very low. But as long as you know what you're going for and what your key metrics are and KPIs, so say bottom of the funnel, you want your A costs to be, I don't know, let's just say very low. And the top of your funnel, you know that your A cost is going to be around 80. Then that's fine as long as you go in knowing those numbers, right? I think that's where you should start and then figure out what your percentage of ad spend should be. A normal benchmark I'm seeing is about five to 7%. And that's five per seven, excuse me, that's five to 7% of top line retail sales on the platform, meaning on Amazon. 
And that's good for medium-sized brands. And when I say medium-sized brands, any kind of brand doing from five to 15 million on the platform, I think that's a good chunk. The smaller your brand, the more you're going to have to spend period. <laughs> it's just going to happen. And then the larger, you could get away with spending less of a percentage because if you're doing $50 million a year, you could easily spend three, 400 grand a month, which is obviously a small percentage, but it's still a chunk of money. Right. So, so right. I think five to 7% is, is uh, fair, but I really think a company slash brand needs to go in recognizing what they want to get out of it and kind of back out the budget from there. And it doesn't have to be your strategy for the whole year. Maybe you peak around holiday season and you know that your core customers come back. So maybe you spend some more money on the lower end of the funnel. Whereas in spring and summer, it's really slow. So maybe you want to cast a wider net and you're going to have to spend some more money. You're going to have to go through the ebbs and flows of that but whatever the case, you're going to have to spend money because the days of just throwing a product on Amazon and expecting somebody to buy it are gone. Those, they were just gone. A great example is this past Prime Day was the smallest amount of growth year over year for a Prime Day, but it was the highest cost per click out of any day in the history of Amazon. Interesting. So you're spending more and you're getting less, right? So Yeah. That's where we're at. Got it. <laughs> so, so Rob, I mean, you, you know, I know you said this is a brand-specific um, determination, but what's the bottom line? If you're a dietary supplement company, should you let Amazon sell your dietary supplements? So that would be a one-party, uh, sorry, a first-party relationship where you're sending, selling your product to Amazon, then Amazon is selling it to the end consumer. I think that's fine if you're meeting one of two conditions. One, if you don't have a map policy and you're not really concerned at what that, that retail price is, sure. Or if you have such a tight control over your distribution channels and or your digitally native brand, where you're not worried about having too many sellers and people scraping the web and driving down your price, then that's fine as well. Because Amazon is not going to adhere or recognize to any sort of pricing policies you have. And Amazon still equates a high level of customer service with having the lowest price. So they're always gonna look to do that. You don't need to look any further than the pet category. And since Chewy has jumped on the scene, it's just a race to the bottom. If you're selling cat food or dog supplements or whatever the case may be, and you're on Chewy and you're on Amazon and you sell your products to both, your suggested retail price could be 20 bucks and you could look up on Amazon and they could be selling it for your wholesale. Man. And then people will say, well, they're losing money. Yeah, they are. But Amazon is willing to take it on the chin in order to give the best customer experience. And then they, they go back to you and they threaten to revoke your uh, privileges or stop buying your product if you don't lower your wholesale price. And then they try to strong arm you and it just turns into this whole circular headache. Maybe better if we were back in 
2013. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus it's expensive to do it first party, right? Because you're selling it to Amazon wholesale and then they're retailing it. Whereas if you're a third party seller on Amazon, yes, there are additional fees, but you're selling direct to consumer. You're just using Amazon as a platform. So if 80 to 90% of the brands that ask me if they should be a third party seller or, or find a third party partner or sell directly to Amazon, I'll tell them to either find a third party partner or be a third party seller. Unless you're under specific conditions, I would, I don't really see a reason to sell directly to Amazon anymore. Okay, great. Rob, thank you so much. We have one last important question for you. What's the funniest impulse buy that you have ever made online? Well, it's not funny. A few years ago, so I live in Florida Mm -hmm. and a few years ago, um, Hurricane Irma was coming through and I had just moved back here. So I was woefully unprepared. And as soon as the weather channel said that there was a good chance that we were going to take a direct hit, which we didn't think of, but that there was a good chance. I was like, I wonder if I could buy a generator on Amazon. And I could, I bought a ginormous generator that, (laughs) that could power almost half of my house on Amazon. And it was at my house in two days, a day before the hurricane hit, I literally bought a generator. Yeah, that's not funny. That's smart. I still want a generator. <laughs> I couldn't buy water because everybody else was in anticipation of the hurricane. But somehow those, you know, those $1,500 generators were still in stock. Wow. So Pretty I got it. That's and I still have it. Driving to Home Depot. Yeah, well, Home Depot, yeah, was it, it was, you would think that as Floridians, we would be calmer about it. But when we think it's really going to hit and it's bigger than a category two. Yeah, it's like zombie apocalypse. People just storm the shelves. I can just imagine all the things. I mean, 10 years, well, two years from now, what will we, will, will, what will we be buying on Amazon? You know, our new house or? You may be buying it from somewhere else. And I know we're limited on time. So feel free to keep this or leave it. But my <laughs> Rob Principi prediction would be maybe within the next two or three years, as soon as, Sites affiliated with Shopify and with the ability to purchase through social, like TikTok, if they can start getting products to people in two days without breaking the bank, I see people having a lot less affiliation with Amazon. And especially if the Fed makes Amazon break up business units, they're like AWS and their retail and their movie, they're AWS business is probably their only profitable business unit. So if they can't rob Peter the PayPal, I would be very skeptical on what their retail unit could do by itself. Because sure, they generate a lot of money, but it's expensive for them to do business as well. So just a little look forward for whatever it's worth. Well, what does AWS stand for? Um, Amazon Web Services. Okay. So they host all the big boys, you know, from NBC to the NFL to... So they have all... And that is uber profitable. But again, because it's all under Amazon, all the profit is melded. If if somebody could just peel back the books for just the retail portion of the business. And a lot of people don't even think that Amazon didn't, didn't even report a profit until 2016. 
they were in the red the entire time until the second quarter of 2016. So, yeah. And Chewy's still in the red. Chewy's never reported a profit. But I'll stop talking now. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for your valuable advice and uh, insights. Uh, it's been super enlightening. Hopefully, we can have you back uh, again to discuss this and if there are any updates. Um, oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I um, hope your editing skills make me sound smart. You too. <laughs> thank you, Rob. <laughs> have a great day. Thank Bye, you. Guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you everyone so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Nutritional Outlook podcast. Um, we're always pleased to take you behind the headlines and provide expert insights from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us at, on the web at nutritionaloutlook.com, on LinkedIn and Facebook, and on Twitter at NutritionalO. Um, the views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of Nutritional Outlook, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editor-in-Chief Jennifer Grebo at jgrebo at mghlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time.